everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It's episode 96. I'm going to call this one the Wright Brothers Experience because I recently took a trip down to the Outer Banks for work and made a stop off in Kitty Hawk. And it was totally unplanned, but I had an incredible time. And it just reminds me that wood and woodworking and lumber is just kind of everywhere. So I wanted to take a little bit of time this episode to, to talk about the, the plane, the right flyer, and well, particularly spruce and its role in the aviation industry. And I'll just say right now, I would love some input from those in the know. If there are any pilots or aeronautical engineers or you know aerospace historians, I would love to hear some of your input on the role that lumber has played in the aviation industry, both past, and present, and maybe even future. Um, in addition to that, I've got uh, a couple of questions in the inbox. We're going to talk about cutting logs. Go figure. We're going to talk about drying again, uh, actually a couple topics on drying, and we're going to revisit the Emerald Ash Borer. So a lot of these topics we've certainly hit on in the past, but they're kind of different bents, different routes of going at the same question. And concerning the number of questions they get about EAB and drying and sawing logs, you might as well just keep on answering them. So as usual, thank you everybody for sending in the questions and, and essentially feeding me content for this show. You can always do that at lumberupdate.com. Uh, there's a contact form there or just lumberupdate at gmail.com is the email address that a lot of people send things to me. Um, of course, I get quite a few inquiries via Instagram as well at lumberupdate.com show. And uh, thank you, as usual, to my lovely, sexy Patreons, patrons who support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash lumber update. Thank you for continuing your support. It's like a Bartles and James ads. Thank you for your support. Anyway, let's move on. Um, well, a little bit of news. Uh, the Today Show actually covered the woodworking in the spire of Notre Dame. And I've heard from so many people how much they love uh, the updates I've done on Notre Dame. There hasn't been a whole lot of update on the woodworking um, because a lot of that was uh, kind of business as usual. There's been some cool updates I've seen on the restoration of the stained glass, on some of the hazmat restoration, like getting the lead and all the other stuff that flashed off during the fire out of there. But um, recently, now that a lot of the joinery for the spire has been done, they've begun assembly. And this is very similar to any timber frame construction where the timbers themselves, of course, there's the whole felling and, and shaping into cants and uh, drying and all that stuff. And then the joinery happens on the ends of each one of these timbers. And then you bring them all to one place and you essentially do a dry run. You do a dry assembly um, of everything, take it apart, put it on trucks, ship it to the job site, in this case, uh, Ile de Cité in, in Paris. Um, sorry, I just went all NPR on you there for a second. And switched into my horrible French accent. <laughs> the Ile of the City, right in the middle of Paris. Um, and then they do the, the assembly there. So we're at that middle stage where, well, they're literally staging it and doing kind of a dry fit, putting the thing together, making sure everything fits, doing any last minute adjusting, you know, tweaking of the, the mortise and tenons and things like that. And this is very similar to a lot of the furniture projects we build. 
I just finished up building a drawer for a small, uh, small side table. And, you know, you mill the individual boards, then you kind of cut the dovetails all by themselves. Then you kind of do a dry fit, then you glue it up, but then you've got additional refining to get it to fit to the, the actual case and all that stuff. So the Today Show did, um, well, a Today Show style. I mean, it was very skin deep, of course. As you can tell, I'm not a huge fan of the Today Show, but it was pretty decent coverage and it was nice to see some of the woodworking going on and nice to see that they are on track for getting this spire up by December of this year, 2023. So go check that out. Um, just some cool woodworking going on in there. I love the fact that there's still so much in the way of hand tool usage being done because there's really not a better way to do it with a lot of these big timbers like that. But man, the scale of this thing is just fascinating. Um, huge, huge timbers. Anyway, so there's the update on Notre Dame. So let's dive into this uh, Wright Brothers experience. First of all, if you have not had the opportunity to go to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, out on the Outer Banks and see the Wright Brothers Memorial, a beautiful memorial on the top of um, Kill Devil Hill, which is where the Wright Brothers did a lot of their gliding experiments. And it's basically like a several hundred foot tall sand dune right smack in the middle of a barrier island that is flat as flat can be with high, high winds. And the Wright brothers wrote that they came to Hitty, that came to Kitty Hawk looking for wind and for sand. They certainly wanted wind uh, to test their glider and they wanted sand to have a soft landing when they uh, hit ground and not so gently. And uh, the quote is, we came for wind and sand and we have found it. And this whole area on Kitty Hawk, of course, now kill... Kill Devil Hill has been seeded for grass to keep it from eroding away. But the, the Wright Brothers Memorial at the top is this beautiful stone, essentially shape of a wing. Really, really beautiful. I'll put it as the featured image for this show if you haven't seen it. But the museum itself does a really, really good job. Now, of course, they have a reproduction of the original Wright Flyer, the, the plane that actually made the initial flight. Um, there were four initial flights. First one was like 100 feet. Most of the first three were like 100 to 200 feet. And then the fourth flight was like, boom, breakthrough. It was like a 700 or 870 foot flight. And it was just, you know, it was in control the entire time. It was no longer gliding. And you can walk out and stand next to the little track. The, the flyer itself had skids on the bottom meant for landing in the sand. And they put it on like a railroad track to... Uh, slide along. So this wasn't like a gliding start. This was starting on flat ground and using the power of of the engine and the prop to get it off the ground. And it was fully in control for that initial flight, making it the first powered flight um, in the history of the world. And, you know, this is all stories that we've heard before, but seeing it, like standing on the field and they have big rocks laid on in the field that mark where they landed for their first, second, third, and fourth flights. And to see just how far they flew was really cool and have the wind like literally blowing me over. Like I could lean over at like a 45 degree angle into the wind and still stay supported. It was just amazing to see that. Then walking in and, and reading all the history, and of course, you know, I'm a cyclist slash triathlete. So the fact that the Wright brothers were bicycle builders, mechanics had the right cycle company in Dayton, Ohio. Also is kind of a little Venn diagram of ventures. We've got wood and cycling all together here. 
Um, but the uh, recreations they have of their cycling workbench, which of course had a leg vice on the front of it, which to me just means I need to beef up my current uh, cycling workbench. I actually have a, a bookshelf. Actually, the Schwarz Anarchist Design Book bookcase is my um, my bike workshop bench. Um, now I feel like I need to add a leg vice to it just so I can emulate the Wright brothers. They also built a small wooden, a wooden wind tunnel for testing experiments, both with their prop, um, but also in wing warping, which is how they controlled the entire plane. Then you walk into the other room and there she is the full 36 foot wide wingspan, right flyer, um, in all its glory. And of course it's all made out of wood. Specifically, it's made out of spruce. Well, a couple things. Spruce, ash, and eastern white pine. And man, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful to stand there and, and look at this. And as the wood nerd, I, I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know that it was spruce, ash, and uh, eastern white pine. So, of course, I'm walking up, like, taking pictures and kind of leaning over the velvet rope as close as I can to look at the, um, the spar members. The spar would be the, the long, the, the leading edge and the trailing edge of the wing, the long part of the structure of the wing, looking at the spar members, looking at the supports that connected, because of course it was a biplane. So it connected the two wings and, you know, at face value, because of course it gets, you know, one whole side of this museum is all windows and the sun just bakes through there all day. So this wood has been heavily tanned and oxidized and at face value, it looks like Western red cedar. It's got a kind of a deep red brown color to it, which I'm looking a little bit closer and I'm thinking, no, something's not right there. That's not quite Western red cedar. And moreover, like would they have been able to get Western red cedar? Now, little known fact, well, it was for me anyway, the, the Wright brothers, of course, they're from Dayton, Ohio, which is why, you know, drive around Ohio, you can see on their license plates, it says the bir birthplace of aviation, uh, which is why Wright Patterson Air Force Base is right there um, in and around Dayton. Well, they built most of their flyers and their gliders in Dayton, Ohio, and broke them down into parts and had them shipped to Kitty Hawk. But the original Wright Flyer, um, they didn't do that. Um, they, they thought, well, we could do some of the assembly on site. And they went to Norfolk, Virginia, which, of course, is Atlantic Fleet Command for the Navy and always was a major um, shipbuilding area. And they couldn't find the spruce that they were used to getting in Ohio. Uh, they ended up using northeastern white pine for the spar because it was the only thing they could get in the 18-foot links that they needed. Two 18-foot links connected in the center makes a 36-foot wingspan. So anyway, I'm looking at this, and as I said, thinking Western Red and, and just kind of thinking geographically how that distributed is a West Coast and uh, British Columbia type wood. I'm thinking certainly there was Western Red coming in Um you know, in the, in the early 1900s, we're talking 1901, 1903. Um, but it just seemed kind of unusual. So then I wandered into the workshop and I started reading some of the placards about, uh, that, the fact that I just shared that they built most of the stuff in Dayton and had it shipped to Kitty Hawk. And I'm thinking, all right, couldn't have been Western red cedar because there was a huge amount of softwoods in the Ohio river Valley and Northeastern United States in general huge um, producers of spruce in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as well as large producers of um, uh, white pine, northeastern white pine, pinus strobus, in other words. 
So then I went back into the the museum part where the actual flyer was, and I'm looking a little bit closer and thinking that may be spruce. And then I remember actually <laughs> the first thing I remembered was the Simpsons episode where Monty Burns does the whole Howard Hughes things and he decides to build uh, an airplane, a big giant airplane, and they called it the Spruce Goose or Spruce Moose, um, which was a play on Howard Hughes' Spruce Goose, the humongous, ginormous Hercules um, uh, U.S. Air Force, well, it was U.S. Army at that point, flyer. No, it was U.S. Air Force. Um, big, big giant thing. Uh, and Howard Hughes got this giant wooden plane to actually fly and it was all made out of spruce. So that was running through my head, specifically the, the Simpsons episode. And I thought, you know what? I wonder if it's spruce. Now, ingrain identification, it happens, excuse me, wood species identification happens in the ingrain, folks. I couldn't see any ingrain whatsoever. I'm looking at you know, beautiful vertical grain versions in the spar and the connecting members. And really, I just made an assumption, this is probably spruce, just looking at the distribution of the rays that I could see, but it couldn't really be certain without being able to see the ingrain. So of course, I went and I asked the park ranger. And the park ranger was incredibly knowledgeable. In fact, the park ranger was also a woodworker. So it was a you know fun little meeting of the minds there as we both began to geek out about this. And he's the one that told me that the Wrights, and I can't remember whether it was Wilbur or Orville, um, independently went to Norfolk, originally helping to get the spruce, couldn't find it in those links, and ended up getting Northeastern White Pine. In fact, I think the original flyer, he was only able to get 16 foot lengths. So I think the original flyer was only 32 foot wingspan instead of the much later 38 foot wingspan that they had in the flyer version two, I believe it was. Long story short, it didn't really matter for those initial concerns with their small motor and things like that. They were looking for strength to weight ratio. Now spruce is renowned for its strength to weight ratio. Pine, not so much, but when you look at the technical numbers, it's pretty similar. The big thing that spruce is known for is really long, straight central bole of the tree and doesn't branch until it gets much higher off the ground. Whereas white pine is a branchier wood. So what that means is there's gonna be more knots in the white pine, whereas spruce can be had in very long, straight, clear wood. And that's really what makes it structurally sound. You throw a knot in the middle and the structure goes right out the window. It's terrible at that point. And this is why spruce ended up becoming the major species for the aviation industry was that incredible strength to weight ratio um, brought on by the fact that it's all clear. Now, there's quite a few different spruces. If you look them up, actually, um, our friends over the Wood Database have a good article on separating the spruce and other lookalikes. But what we were probably talking about was red spruce or black spruce. If it was built in the Dayton region, so again, we're talking Midwest to Eastern North America, we're talking Picea rubens for red spruce um, and uh, Picea mariana for black spruce. And both of those have a hardness of the upper 400s to low 500s, pound, uh, foot pounds. Um, so again, not particularly hard, but we're looking at average dried weight of 26 to 28 uh, cubic per, per cubic foot, um, 
really quite lightweight. But here's the important thing. The modulus of rupture and the elastic modulus, uh, MOR is, is over 10,000. Uh, MOE is 1.5 million. And when you compare that to northeastern white pine, it's quite a bit softer. It's about 100 foot-pounds softer. Um, it is lighter. It's only 22 pounds as compared to about 28 pounds for the spruce because its density, uh, northeastern white pine's density, is lower. But when we look at the MOR, again, um, spruce MOR is over 10,000. Northeastern white pine MOR is only 6,500. Northeastern white pine MOE is 800,000 versus the 1.5 million of spruce. So with just a little bit more weight, and frankly, the densities are close enough that's almost negligible between the two. So what you're looking at with Northeastern white pine is similar density, lighter, and therefore um, more, more brittle, less bending strength, substantially less, um, like 60% less stiffness than, than um, spruce, and half the bending strength of spruce. So yeah, it makes sense that the Wrights were specifically looking for spruce when they went to Norfolk and kind of had to settle for Northeastern white pine. Now, uh, and, and here again, um, they had to settle for 16 foot spar instead of 18 foot spar because it just wasn't possible. The average tree size of spruce is more than 150 feet, whereas Northeastern white pine, you're generally talking 80 to 100 feet in, in height. So again, spruce was time and again, the number one strength, the number one structural member for aviation and industry. And really, I mean, this was long before um, Wilbur and Orville had the first powered flight because of course gliding had been going on for quite some time and the gliders were using spruce. So the Wright brothers just picked up where others had left off and continued to use spruce. Now, they had already discovered the, the Bernoulli effect and the idea that um, a lenticular shaped wing could make produce that Bernoulli effect where the air moved faster over the wing, creating lower pressure and causing lift. So they were already creating that lenticular shaped wing and they did that through using ash. The ribs, um, and the, the, there were ribs that were bent and then there was um, fabric, muslin stretched over top of it in order to create the wing. The spar, uh, the spruce, was the leading edge of the wing and the trailing edge of the wing. The ash ribs connected the two spar and were bent into that lenticular shape, and then the muslin was stretched over top of it. So when you're looking for something that's going to uh, maintain incredible strength, yet still bend and hold its bent shape, um, under, you know, and, 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 and be really, really thin and really, really strong, well, immediately we're gonna start looking at ring porous woods. And when you start comparing the oaks and the ashes and the locusts and things like that, ash is the clear winner from a weight perspective, from a strength perspective, and from a bending strength perspective. So MOR, MOE, weight, density, all those things playing together to um, make ash like the preferred species. And at the time, you think about it, ash was being used for baseball bats. Hickory was being used for baseball bats as well, but ash was really uh, a very, very popular species for many different applications. Here again, that lenticular wing shape had already been determined 
and uh, people were using ash for this. So that was the, you, you certainly wouldn't want to use spruce or pine because it wasn't going to bend as well. And in those really, really thin strips that the ribs were made up of, it was losing a lot of its strength. Ash, because of that ring porous nature, could be shaped to be quite thin, yet still very, very strong. And with the high bending strength of ash, you could bend it and not lose any of that structure as you connected the two spar members. Now, the prop itself was also made with spruce. And this was interesting because I hear from woodworkers all the time, especially woodworkers who are building workbenches, you know, and they can't find large timbers because they're making like a Rubo style and they want to make, you know, big five inch by five inch legs. And they're like, I can't find any stock for that. Is it okay if I glue them together? Is that going to cause a structural problem? And I'm constantly reminding people, you know, it's fine. You glue two boards together and essentially you've got one board now. Um, the glue line, especially with modern glues, can actually be somewhat stronger than the natural glue line, the lignin that is in the wood. So when we look at how the Wright brothers created their prop, first of all, props up to this point were all marine applications. And if you look at like a boat propeller, it's totally different looking than uh, an airplane propeller. The Wright brothers are the ones who really kind of figured that out. And they laminated together three pieces of spruce um, kind of slightly offset angles, creating like a stair step pattern, and then just used a draw knife to shape away that stair step pattern into a smooth, twisted prop shape. And uh, first of all, the hand tool lover in me loves the fact that they just glued a couple of boards together, grabbed some draw knives, and started experimenting. The wind tunnel that they built in their workshop told them the pitch and how the variable pitch needed to change as it moved closer to the arbor of the motor and uh, further out to the tips of the prop. The length of the prop was all determined by the wind tunnel test they did and just tweaking and playing with that pitch of the prop by using a draw knife, they were able to create two props that provided the thrust they were looking for with the low horsepower they had for their motor because of course, they needed low weight in the motor as well. Um, I'm the, the original horsepower is eluding me. I want to say it was like 15. That may be too high. Certainly once they, and when they did their initial test, they realized that, you know, they were getting a lot of lift on these wings and they could carry substantially more weight. I think the right flyer four had a motor that was nearly four times the horsepower and they were carrying multiple people around on it. So they were quickly realizing that while uh, powered or strength to weight was a big deal, they could lift quite a bit more weight than anyone ever thought. Fast forward, you know, a while to Howard Hughes and his whole spruce goose idea. You think about the weight, the size of that thing, all made out of spruce and plywood and things in order to lift tanks, multiple tanks and troop carriers and everything. Uh, suddenly we realized this, this, um, power to weight thing, uh, the weight issue, while it was still important, was not nearly as important as we used to think when we were just gliding, when we were just relying upon the wind. Now we could generate thrust and we could drive into the wind and create quite a bit more lift. So, you know, we're, we're straying away from lumber at this point and venturing into history and aviation. So let me try to rein this back into areas that I know what I'm talking about. But here again, the, the geek that I am just loves the history, and I love the central role that the wood played in all of this. And I'd be lying if I told you uh, I wasn't tempted <laughs> to build my own right flyer when I walked out of that museum. In fact, well, I bought a little model, and I will probably be building that. It's a, I can't remember the scale, but it's still like a, 
it's like a five foot model, five foot wide model, um, that I'm going to build in my own shop and kind of have fun with. But here again, here's my, um, my call to anybody, any aeronautical engineers, any aviation people, any pilots that have some input on this. Um, I know that we, we don't sell a lot of lumber today to the aviation industry. We do sell plywood. We sell a lot of lightweight plywood to smaller, um, uh, I'm using a brand name here, but Learjet type things. I know that's a brand name, but those type of, of, of smaller jets, we sell some plywood to them, but I do know that I'm of course plywood and, um, uh, like foam core plywood and things is used a lot in that industry. I'd be curious to find out today what kind of solid wood is still used. I wouldn't imagine, I imagine aluminum and carbon fiber, especially carbon fiber have taken over on the higher end of things. But like, as you're talking about small, like single engine prop, you know, Cessna type thing, again, realizing that's a brand name. I'd love to hear from any pilots out there about how much of those planes are actually made out of wood anymore and how much has been made uh, shifted over into metals like carbon fiber and, and aluminum, uh, aluminum, 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 there we go. Um, and moreover, what kind of internal parts, you know, maybe the outer control surface and everything are made out of metals, but I wonder what the interior is made out of things like spruce and what are the species that are being used today? Because if spruce is not exactly what it used to be in the early 1900s, um, spruce, fir, hem fir has all been lumped into structural members. It's still quite easy to get, but you end up buying it as spruce pine fir and it's two by fours and two by sixes and things like that. And it's not particularly grown to be super, super tall and long and straight and clear. So getting an 18 foot spar member would be very difficult to do these days since most of the, you know, spruce pine fir uh, is specifically grown uh, over a short period of time in order to be turned into two by fours and two by sixes and such. I wonder if there are concessions out there that are managing longer versions specifically for the aeronautical industry, or is that just gone the way of the dodo? So please, if you know, um, you know I could do a little bit of research on my own, but I always love to hear from actual experts uh, who might be listening to the show. And if you know someone who is an actual expert who doesn't listen to the show, then forward this to them and I'd love to hear their take on it. And nothing else, the history of the Wright Brothers experience is just, just amazing. And please, if you are ever anywhere near the Outer Banks of North Carolina, make a point to get to Kitty Hawk and experience that. Now I just got to get back to Dayton. I've been to Dayton before, but I have not been, you know, and checked out any of the Wright Brothers um, history in that area. So now I've got to go and check out like Huffman Field and of course the bike shop and all the areas that, that may or may not still exist just to further my experience with the whole thing. So anyway, I appreciate uh, your indulgence and in, in hanging with me on this little bit kind of tangentially about wood, but to me just a, a really cool um, Venn diagram, as I said before, of my interests in history and my interests in wood. So let's move on to some questions. Um, our good friend Tommaso, you guys remember Tommaso? He talked to us about um, auctions for lumber in episode something like that. Anyway, he wrote in and said, "When cutting up logs, should you cut it parallel to the bark or parallel to the pith?" And that may sound like kind of a weird question, like you know, the pith's in the center of the tree and it runs down the long axis of the log, and so does the bark. But the pith is not always parallel to the bark. The pith is not always parallel to the long axis of the tree. Um, in fact, 
Um, I, one might actually say that if you really look at a log, the pith is rarely parallel to the bark because a tree tapers as it gets taller and taller and taller. I often describe, I think of, you know, those like conical paper cups, like you go and there's like a, like a water cooler and there's that little dispenser of, of paper cups and they're cone shaped. If you take those and they're all stacked and nested together, if you take one of those stacks of conical paper cups, turn them upside down. So the, the point is facing up. That's essentially a tree. Those growth rings are layering, growing, layering on top of one another, but they're also tapering to the point. So a lot of times you'll find that as that bark tapers, it's moving in the two, you think of the bark on the outside of the tree is actually um, converging on a point at the top. So the bark is often not parallel to the pith. Now, as you go further down the log and get into the wider, more mature part of the tree, you may find at that point that the bark is more parallel to the pith. Ideally, what you want to do is be sawing parallel to the pith and not paying too much attention to the bark itself, because that is where you're going to get, I think, the better looking lumber. And the reason that I wanted to address this is oftentimes you'll look at a board and the like look at the a flat sawn board and you're looking at the face, you're looking at those cathedral patterns, and you find that those cathedral patterns are they're not particularly pointy. They're kind of squashed. Like instead of coming up to that point, they're more of like a long, wide radius circle. And they're really, really spaced out. And you might look at that and think, wow, you know, the the distance between these growth rings is like seven inches. What was going on with that? And that's because those growth rings are on a bias. They are, in that case, probably cut parallel to the bark, not parallel to the pith. So you're not really seeing, you know, when we talk about a growth ring measures one year in a tree's life, and the wider space those growth rings are, the faster that tree grew, which may mean more favorable growing conditions, more water, better better temperatures, better things for that particular species. And the tight growth rings mean that it had a harder time and it grew a little bit slower. Well, when you see a growth ring that is, you know, <laughs> inches and inches apart, you're looking at it uh, at an angle in reference to the pith. And that can actually yield some real interesting effects from tension wood to also dramatically reduced strength properties. When we talk about modulus of elasticity, modulus of rupture, we are talking per perpendicular to the grain. We talk about compression strength, we're talking parallel to the grain. Those tests are done on boards perpendicular and parallel to the grain. Well, when you've got a board that's cut on a bias to the pith, you can no longer really test perpendicular and parallel to the grain. You're testing some angle in between, and you can see more delamination of those growth rings at those angles in between. So ideally, you want to saw parallel to the pith in order to gain the maximum strength in that particular board. Parallel to the bark gives you all kinds of other issues. Now, you run into other issues where the pith is maybe offset or the pith is growing at a weird angle because the tree grew on a hillside or grew in a highly windy area. You get all kinds of tension and things built up into the board. And sometimes a sawyer will saw kind of against that tension as a way to, some, to release some of that. But you still end up with a reduction and strength because you're not able to truly get parallel and perpendicular to the grain in your tests. So long-winded answer to that question is, ideally, you want to saw parallel to the pith. Good question, Tommaso. Uh, Aaron 
has a question on drying. He says, I'm new to milling lumber. I recently purchased a Woodland Mills bandsaw mill. I live in Iowa where the average humidity is between 60 and 80%. My question is, if I'm using my boards to build and line outside buildings, what do I need to dry my lumber to? Is air drying a few months adequate for it to come out uh, to equilibrium with the environment? Does the atmospheric humidity and the percent of moisture and lumber correlate? I don't see the point in drying lumber to 6% if it's used outside in 80% humidity, or am I confused on this? Short answer, Aaron, yes, you're confused on this. The atmospheric humidity or relative humidity, or one might even say absolute humidity, but mostly when we talk about humidity, when he talks about, you know, Iowa was warm and wet, 60 to 80%, that's relative humidity. Humidity changes with temperature. It is directly proportional. The higher the temperature, the more water can be carried in the air. So when you say it's 80% humidity and it's 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside, there is not the same amount of water uh, vapor in the air as when you say it's 80 degrees and 80% humidity. The air has a greater capacity to carry moisture the hotter it is. So that relative humidity number that you see on the weather channel and things like that has absolutely nothing to do with moisture content. That is an absolute humidity number. This is the amount of water, the amount of water molecules, whether free water or bound water in the wood itself, you know, as a percentage of volume, you know, a log is volume of X. Um, the, the moisture content is Y over X essentially. And you get that times 100, you get your percentage. So, and, and it's a finite volume, right? There's a finite volume in a board. So as the, the water drains out or uh, evaporates out as it's drying, that moisture content will drop. So equilibrium moisture content is a point where the board will neither gain nor lose moisture as part of its volume as, as it relates to the climate. So here, Basically, what you're talking about in Iowa is very similar to what I have out here on the East Coast, where you get, you know, very humid summers. Certainly, as the temperature and the humidity, the relative humidity goes up, there's more moisture in the air, so there's more there's more moisture just saturating the wood itself. The wood will then absorb more of that moisture, and it will come into an equilibrium to the point where the, the relative humidity in the air around it is not really pushing any more moisture into the board, but it's also at equilibrium, so the board's not losing any moisture. That EMC or the equilibrium moisture content is going to vary from region to region. But with my shop here in Maryland being similar to, to Iowan summers, my EMC is about 12% in my shop. Right now, it's about 10% here in the spring, and it's starting to climb towards that high of 12%. Um, this will vary pretty dramatically. You, it's interesting to do these tests in your own shop to have an idea what your EMC is. So one thing you can do is if you have a moisture meter, certainly continue to check and see, you know, where your wood levels out. You know, if you've had wood that's been in your shop for a while, it's 
going to be at EMC with your shop and take that moisture reading several times throughout the year to understand where it is. You also, if you bring a board into your shop, you can keep checking it to see when it stops losing moisture. And if for, you know, weeks on end, it stays at the same moisture content, it's now reached equilibrium. It's a really good test to do so that you just know, I can say with authority, my shop 10% EMC right now in the spring, it'll top out at 12% like in July and August and the hottest, most humid parts of the month. It's just a good thing to know if you're going to be building um, anything in of wood in your shop. So they're somewhat related, but kind of not at the same time. The numbers don't really mean anything to do with one another since it's more of an absolute humidity on the board and a relative humidity on the atmosphere. So now we've got that out of the way, let's get to your question. Yes, you can kiln dry wood. Uh, it isn't really necessary for exterior applications. So here's the thing. Kiln drying not only takes the, the, the moisture down, but it also hardens the cell walls. And uh, we've got an episode of Wood Talk called um, Rehydrated Toast, because I've often used the metaphor that, you know, when you take a piece of bread and it's nice and soft and pliable and kind of gooey, you put it in the toaster and it becomes crunchy and brittle. And if you try to rehydrate that toast, it just kind of falls apart because what you've done is you've dried the toast to the point where it's become harder. It's become more brittle. It's lost some of that pliability. Well, in the case of wood, when you drop that moisture down really to 0% and then you rehydrate it up to 4 to 6 or 6 to 8% when it comes out of the kiln, you're hardening the cell walls and you're preventing the, the cell wall's ability to absorb uh, moisture at the rate that it used to. It will still absorb moisture, but it sheds that water a lot more readily and it doesn't absorb quite as quickly. It's that dry creek bed effect where when it rains, you get a flash flood because the water doesn't soak in. It just sluices off and it runs downhill really, really quickly and violently. So a passing thunderstorm is not really going to have any effect on a kiln-dried board because it can't absorb the moisture quick enough. So the humidity spikes when a storm comes through and then it drops right after the storm and the wood just doesn't change at all. Also, because those cell walls have hardened, the wood is a little bit more resistant to moving. It's not as pliable. Now, it will absorb moisture and it will move, but it does so slower. And that's why we hear that kiln-dried wood is just more stable. Um, now, it is harder. It is more brittle, as most things, when they become harder, become more brittle. But it's to a degree that it's not really, gonna, it's not really affecting the structural integrity of the board. So there is that advantage to kiln drying an exterior cladding wood so that it is a little bit more resistant to the, the fluctuations of the atmosphere. But let's be real. For the most part, we have seasons, right? It gets hot and humid in the summer and it stays hot and humid for a couple of months and then it starts to cool off and the humidity starts to drop in the fall and it stays kind of sort of stable for a month or so and then it's cold and dry in the winter and it stays that way for three to four months. And I'm speaking for my own climate here on the East Coast. Um, other areas like, you know, California with more of a, that, well, actually unique Southern California climate, it's closest to a Mediterranean climate where it's warm and dry most of the time. In fact, they're warmer and drier in the winter with like during Santa Ana season, but it's pretty stable. Hawaii, uh, is another example. It's just, it's tropical. It's, it's hot and wet all the time. So there's not a lot of variance there. Move into tropical climes in like South America and it's pretty much the same 
all along, uh, all year round. So there isn't that variability and it's not really that big of a deal. It's the temperate climes and areas with other elements like oceanfront and things like that that can have a little bit more um, uh, violent swings in the atmosphere that the kiln-dried wood will resist those swings a lot more. And air-dried wood will never get down to 0%, which is really where that hardening happens. And it really, at least on the East Coast, it'll never get to 6%. It's a 6% when it comes out of the kiln. And like at our yard, it'll hit 10% within a day or two when it comes out of the kiln. And that's even kiln-dried wood. So air-dried wood, if you're just letting Mother Nature do it, it tends to kind of level out at EMC and it never goes below that. Why would it? That's why it's equilibrium, right? When it's at equilibrium, there's no reason to lose any more moisture. If you're in the desert of Arizona, you know, your EMC could be 4% at that point. But even then, it takes a long time for wood to naturally hit 4% because to get that low, you're talking about all the bound water, you're talking about hydroxyl compounds and things like that that have to be broken apart in order for your moisture temp- your moisture content to go that low. So if you take a board and air dry it in Arizona, it will get to 4% but it'll, it'll stop at like 8%. And that curve, you know, if you were to graph it, that curve would flatten out and it would very slowly get down to like 4% just because of the difficulty in, in um, getting aboard that dry. So you think about it, if you're cladding a home with a kiln dried material, it's yes, it's going to be more resistant to change, but probably not necessarily, not necessary because of the slower shifts in climate that, you know, that is the world that we live in. Even whether you, 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 you know, endorse the, the more radical models of global warming or go for a more conservative look at global warming, it's still not super, super radical when it comes to day-to-day changes on the wood. All of this to say that many people choose to use, I'm going to throw air quotes up here, air-dried material for exterior cladding because the air dried material is of all an already higher moisture content. Now, European countries have their kiln dried standard is about 15%, whereas in North America, we're looking six to 8% because North America is drier than Europe. So Europe's like, why would we go to 6% when it's just going to swell right back up to 18%. So a lot of quote, air dried material here in North America has just been dried to European standards and left that way. And that cell hall, cell wall hardening that happens, you know, in the 4% and under doesn't happen at 15 or 12% like you have with European lumber. So it is a little bit more pliable. It is a little bit more prone to take up water faster than the kiln dried stuff, but it also is very happy at equilibrium. So the answer is you can do both. But if you're doing the drying, you're going to save money and time, which can be both, by not drying all the way down to 6% or frankly to 0% and then rehydrating during the reverse case hardening process, letting it air dry or possibly putting it in a kiln for a short, shorter period of time, getting it down to 12% or closer to your EMC for the middle of summer and then cladding from there. The only other issue you have to worry about is bugs. And I say the only other, because that's kind of a big issue. Kiln drying will kill the bugs. And it's one of the only things you can count on to kill the bugs. So if you're cladding a house with wood, you probably want to make sure there's no bugs in it. Uh, In fact, you're probably by code going to be required 
to have a fumigation certificate certificate to do that. So that's going to be the big thing. Air-dried wood may be better. And most of the, again, air quote, air-dried wood used in North America, um, it's already a rot-resistant wood to begin with. Um, and you're not going to have as many bug problems. You wouldn't want to clad the outside of a house with ash, for example. A, because the emerald ash borer. B, ash is not really an exterior species. White oak, on the other hand, is a great exterior species, but the powder post beetle is causing problems with white oak. So when you're cladding with white oak, you need a fumigation certificate. When you're buying the lumber, it needs to have been kiln dried and it needs to have that fumigation certificate to tell you that there's no bugs in it. There's no termites in it. But if you're cladding your house in Ipe or Kumaru, those are resistant to those bugs to begin with, plus class A fire rated on top of that. So the species you choose will, will determine that. So the short answer is, I don't think you need to kiln dry it, but it's going to depend on species, going to depend on your building, building codes and all that fun stuff. So long answer there, but what else do you expect from this show? Come on. Nobody wants a quick answer if you're going to write into this show. Um, Michael has a question about the um, emerald ash borer for furniture. He says, I'm finding and using opportunistic ash logs are ash trees that have been killed by the emerald ash borer less usable for furniture making. Is the lumber impacted by how long a dead ash tree has been standing? So obviously this will depend upon the amount of damage that particular ash log has seen, but absolutely it's usable for furniture making. One of the biggest um, errors I'm seeing in response to the EAB is the trees infected automatically mulch it. And that can actually go further to spread the EAB because, you know, you're mulching the log, but you're not mulching the bugs. I mean, maybe you mulch some of the bugs, but you know, the bugs are smaller than the pieces of mulch. So you're actually like turning that food into baby food, which makes it easier for the EAB to, to, um, eat it. Now they can't plant eggs and things in the mulch. So that may stop their proliferation, but certainly, you know, you just made a nice little puree there, a nice little, um, EAB happy smoothie, and they're going to town on it. So that, may not be the best way to do this. Also think for the most part, they're, they're staying in the sapwood where the food and the sugar is. If they're boring into the hardwood, that's generally to lay eggs. Um, but the hardwood can still be quite usable. Now there are going to be some trees where the amount of boring is quite extensive. And of course you bore a hole through things, you can weaken some of the structure. So it's going to depend on, on the amount of damage in the log. But I think for the most part, the ash trees that are being destroyed could be very usable for lumber, especially if it's going to go into a kiln because the kiln is going to kill those bugs. And you're certain about that. So I think most of these logs need to be turned into boards, whether it be used for furniture making or anything else, moldings possibly. The issue certainly is how long is a dead ash tree? Like how long is it good for? And again, that will depend upon the damage. If, if a tree is, has been killed by the EAB and it's left standing, well, the bugs are still in it. So the bugs could still be, you know, eating it. Now, once the tree dies, though, it's no longer pulling up water. It's no longer pulling up nutrients from the soil. So it's not really producing food for the bug. It could, however, be a giant <laughs> EAB brothel. <laughs> they could just be um, laying eggs left and right inside that thing and turning it into like, you know, a, a nursery for EAB. Um, so again, you can't really say how long is it good for. It all depends upon what the infestation is like and were there other trees that that 
dead, you know, once that ash tree died, the bugs probably moved on to another tree, a better source. If there were no other trees around it, if it's a sole ash tree standing in a yard, those bugs could have stayed in the ash tree for a long time. You really won't know until you actually cut open the log and see the amount of boring that's been going on inside. I suspect once you get deeper into the heartwood, you won't see those tunnels anymore and you realize, hey, this is perfectly good lumber. You still, however, want to kiln dry it and get your fumigation certificate. I certainly wouldn't bring that stuff into my house if I knew that it had uh, emerald ash borer in it at one point. So this brings me to the last point, and this came in from Instagram. Um, and I'm actually, I've, I've been told I can use names, but I'm going to leave names out of it altogether because I don't want anybody to get their feathers ruffled. This is a, a, a story of, of a gentleman who was sawing some logs, um, some oak logs, and wanted to use the boards for flooring. So he took the wood to a local kiln operator, had it dried, and it went in the kiln for five weeks. And then he got the first load out of the kiln and he started installing the floor. And he says right away, he didn't check the moisture, nor did the kiln operator check the moisture. And they both say, we probably should have checked the moisture. Long story short, they got the floor installed. They pulled the second load out of the kiln and checked the moisture and discovered that it was like anywhere from 12 to 25% on the wood, kind of a lot of variability there. And immediately we're concerned because it was the same kiln schedule as the first load. Started doing some moisture checking in the floor and realized, oh crap, the floor that's already been installed had quite a bit higher moisture content. So they've already seen significant amount of shrinkage in the boards, therefore opening a gap between the each member each uh, board on that tongue and groove there's a much wider gap there it's just began to shrink so the concern was we've got this second load that came out we know that it's really high in moisture content should we let it rest for a while or should we put it back in the kiln my answer was absolutely put it back in the kiln because five weeks ain't long enough to dry oak red or white oak it's just not long enough it's a species that can be uh, particularly troublesome white oak particularly because of the tylos and the pores that kind of resist pulling the water out most people when they dry oak will get it in a kiln as soon as possible like it's sawn the wood is sopping wet and they will get it in the kiln but not turn it on just so that they have a little bit more control um, mother nature, you can't control her and she's going to dry willy nilly. If you just leave it out in the open, even if you cover it and, you know, sticker it, you're still getting, you're at the, the mercy of sunrise, sunset winds, things like that. If you put it inside a kiln and close the door, you're, you're kind of controlling situations there. You can turn on your fans, but not turn on the heat and have a lot more control over the air that's blowing over it. So when we dry oak, we will actually stick it in the kiln and not turn it on and leave it in the kiln for almost two weeks before we even turn on the kiln, just to get some of the, the bulk of the moisture out in a controlled manner. Then you turn on the kiln, and in many instances, it's in there for multiple months. It's a very slow dry because of the poor structure of white oak. Um, if you dry too fast, it's going to case harden and collapse and do all kinds of honeycomb nasty stuff there. So five weeks is not even like half the time you want to dry this oak. So in this particular instance, um, he said, I, I thought the kiln operator would know this, but apparently he didn't, which is why I'm leaving names out of this. There's a lot of things that could vary here. Um, maybe he should have known. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he doesn't dry a lot of oak. But there's other things at play here. There's more than just the heat and the time, the kiln schedule. 
how you load a kiln has a large amount to do with how well or how not the lumber will dry. If you have a significant amount of dead air in the kiln, it's going to dramatically affect how the wood dries. Loading a kiln is, a, is an art all to itself. People who load kilns for a living are exceptionally good at the game Tetris because that's what they play all day long. You want to try to eliminate as much dead air as possible. The stickers that you use from the makeup and the amount of tannins into it to the thickness to the shape of the sticker, the space, how many stickers you put in um, along the length of a board will vary, will control how well a board dries. There is so much more to just stacking wood and turning it on. The levelness of that first course, uh, you watch my buddy Matt's uh, YouTube channel and all of his air drying sheds and the amount of time he put into getting his first, his bolsters, not only level, but all perfectly parallel to one another. If that is off in the slightest, it's going to add tension. It's going to cause twists and everything It's going to cause all kinds of problems when it comes to drying. So lots of other things could be at play here that maybe was not observed in this particular drying, which caused it not to dry as much. Mostly though, five weeks is just not long enough. So the caveat here is if you have sawn some boards and you are going to take it to get kiln dried, you want to do a little bit of investigation and make sure that this person has worked with that species before. How long have they been running a kiln? What do they estimate the drying time will be? And here's the thing. Go to the Forest Products Laboratory website or just Google something like kiln drying schedule for maple, walnut, pick your species. That's all public domain stuff. You're going to find, you know, decades old documentation on what the kiln drying schedule should be. And if that kiln drying schedule says it needs to be in there for eight weeks or 12 weeks, and this guy's telling you he can do it in five, while it can be possible, there are some technologies that allow for that. I want to know, how are you getting this down to five weeks? Because you know, FPL, Forest Products Laboratory, says eight weeks. And if they can give you a solid answer, you're good. But if they're like, ah, no, they say it takes eight, but I can do it in five, that may be a little too hold my beer for me. Um, this is my lumber. I don't want to ruin it here. You're drying it too fast, you're going to ruin it completely. You're going to turn it into firewood because you've case hardened the crap out of it. If you're just drying it not enough, then what's going to be the difference? Now I'm going to have an air-dried wood that's not going to have that same stability of kiln-dried or I'm not going to have killed the bugs. And that's the primary concern for me because I love working with air-dried lumber. It's the bugs that worry me more than anything else. So the moral of this story is just because you're taking it to a kiln operator doesn't mean that they know what they're doing. Um, and, and be informed. You know, this is your, your, um, your money at stake here. Not only are you paying for the drying, but it's your material, your investment in this wood that you need to understand all things that go into that. If you choose to run your own kiln, then recognize that it's more than just throwing lumber in there and turning it on. Be very aware of how to load your kiln and be very conscious of the stickers you use and the spacing and the shape and all that fun stuff. There's a reason that there are you know, professional people that, that dry lumber. And I realize I'm biased because I work for a company that operates seven different dry kilns. But, you know, <laughs> as, as excited as I am about the grassroots movement of sawmilling, I feel like the commercial lumber trade will, will always have a place because of the science that is kiln drying. And there's too many people, you know, being a little cavalier about it and ending up with inconsistent results. So, yeah be a little bit more aware of, of how you're kiln drying things. Long story short for this particular instance is 
if they put the wood back in and they leave it in the kiln for probably four to five more weeks, I think they'll end up with some nice dry material. Fortunately, this particular installation was a loft, so it wasn't going onto a substrate. It was actually going on a joist. So there's airflow on both sides of the flooring. And I think it's going to equalize nicely. And I think in the end, you might have slightly larger gaps on this, but they'll be okay. His solution is, because he's still got more flooring to do, he's going to wait for the second load to come out of the kiln and he's going to use the stuff that he already um, was dried not enough in the first batch. He's gonna alternate first batch, second batch, first batch, second batch. Um, and the reason that he can't put the first batch back into the kiln is they've already oiled it. Do not put oiled wood into a kiln, folks. <laughs> if, if you do, dial 9-1 and just hold on the, on the second one for a while because you're gonna need to dial that at some point. Big, big fire hazard. So he can't put the first batch in because it's already been oiled. So he's going to put a you know an oiled board down and then a second kiln load board next to that and then an oiled board and a second kiln load with the idea that the second kiln load is not going to shrink as much whereas the first kiln load is going to shrink and at least he can kind of half the shrinkage. If you put two of the first kiln load together, he's going to see large gaps like he already has in the already installed section of the floor. So, you know, making making lemonade out of lemons in this particular case and lesson is learned. Um, and, and I'm, I certainly am not trying to throw this kiln operator under the bus. I think there's several people that could have done things a little bit better and you don't really want to point the finger at anybody because he may have never dried oak before, or he may have just started using the kiln and is still in a learning process. We all have to start somewhere and hopefully this can be a great learning experience. It sounds like there's a good relationship between the Sawyer and the kiln operator, and they're both kind of working together on this. And ideally the next time he dries oak, it's going to be done better. Maybe not as good as somebody's been doing it for 40 years, but it's certainly you've learned along the way. We all have to do have to go through that process, right? So that being said, that brings me to the end of another random episode of Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for all your questions. And um, go buy some kiln-dried wood or go build a plane out of some wood and let me know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs>